Does it seem to you like Christians eat all the time? (laughs) Together, that is. Well, they do, and that's because Jesus uh, institutes uh, a table feast for us. Even before Jesus instituted that feast, He ate with uh, His disciples. He ate with those who were really His enemies. And we're going to look at one of those occasions today as we prepare to come to His table. Also, in preparation for um, our message this morning, I want to tell you about a special event happening on the September, on the September, on September 15th at Edgewood Country Club. And if you received a program or a bulletin on your way in, you have a green card. And you have a choice to make. You can have honey pecan salmon crusted salmon, that is, or chicken Romano. We want you to be a part of this. And some people say, listen, I'm not really an official member of Hebron. So, you're invited. If you are a part of our congregation for a few weeks or years or decades, whether or not you're a member, if you're part of this congregation, we want you to come. So, that's just a Encouragement to all of you because some very significant things will happen at that dinner. We'll talk about where God's leading us as a congregation and how we all can be involved. Let's take a look now at this dinner party in Luke chapter 7. If you're aware, we were in Luke chapter 8 last week, so we moved back one chapter and we read this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Forty years ago I graduated from college, which means I'm very old. (laughs) 
The same year Gary Gilmore died in Utah. You may remember it. He's the first person to die from execution in 10 years. Because 10 years before that, the U.S. Supreme Court said that execution by any means was cruel and unusual. But Gilmore begged for it. After two failed suicide attempts, they put him to death. Now, the state of Utah gave him a choice. They said, we can hang you, or we can put you in front of a firing squad. You know what Gilmore said? Hanging can be botched. I want the guns. And at age 37, standing by a wall in Utah, Gary Gilmore had his body riddled with bullets. And you say to yourself, what would cause a 37-year-old man to want to be executed? Well, in Gilmore's case, we have a clue. Two weeks before he was executed, he wrote a letter to his girlfriend. And he said this, It seems like I know evil more intimately than goodness. And that's not a bad thing. I want to get even. I want to be whole. I want my debts paid. Whatever it takes, I want to have no blemish, no reason to feel guilt. I want to stand before God. I'd like to know that I'm right and I'm clean. Because when you are, you know it, and when you're not, you know that too. It's inside all of us. Eric Fromm, the great German psychoanalyst, once said, it's an amazing thing that in as irreligious culture as we have today, the sense of guilt would be so widespread and deep-seated. Thirty years ago, I heard R.C. Sproul say to a group of us, you know, I can understand every argument that a pagan makes because for years I was one. But I have one question to ask the pagans, and that's this. What are you going to do with your guilt? I mean, talk about proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's where it's got to start. What are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with your guilt? And that's exactly what this incident in Jesus' life talks about. You know, Luke is the only gospel writer to tell us this account. Every other gospel writer talks about a woman who does the same thing near the end of his ministry, but this woman is coming near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And look where Luke puts it, or at least listen to where Luke puts it. It's right after John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah, or should we go looking for another? Remember what Jesus said to them? You go back and you tell John what you see. The blind see. The poor have the good news of the gospel proclaimed to them, and the captives are set at liberty. 
If ever there were an incident in Jesus' ministry that proves that he's doing all of that, it's this one. Somebody has said, if ever there was an example of Jesus proving the Isaiah prophecy, it is what he does in the home of a Pharisee. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the obvious. Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. You know what's amazing to me about that? The Pharisee's main criticism of Jesus was he was an overeater, a glutton, and a drunk. And the reason they said it was he seemed to be eating everywhere. He would sit at table with anybody. But the amazing thing about this story is it's a Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to his own party. And Luke tells us as he reclines at the table, remember, with the feet out from the table and the the head on a bent elbow, right by the food, a woman comes in who Luke describes as a woman of the city, a sinner. I love what the uh, great expositor from Scotland, Alexander McLaren, said. We always imagine that purity repels the sinner. But the purity of Jesus always attracts the sinner. I imagine it would have been an awful long time before a penitent woman would come and weep at the feet of Socrates. You know, isn't that true? You know your own guilt, you know your own sin, and you come in the presence of somebody who is pure and that person knows it. You want to hightail it out of there. But when you come into the presence of Jesus and He's completely pure, there's an attraction. I love what Thomas Merton once said. He said, surrender your poverty... And acknowledge your nothingness to the Lord, whether you understand it or not. For He offers an understanding and a compassion that are nothing like anything you've ever found in a book or heard in a sermon. That's what this woman does. She comes and she risks it to lay herself down at the feet of Jesus. In the house of a religious guy. Second, notice some observations. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of a Pharisee, she brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. You know, if you read the New Testament, you will find, even the whole Bible, you'll find that very few people are identified by only their sin. Luke doesn't give us her name. He doesn't give us the town. We don't know the town, but we know that the town knows her. She's a woman of the city. A sinner. She's a prostitute. Luke doesn't even name her. But he does tell us something about her. Not only is she a sinner, a woman of the city, but she also does five things that are remarkable. First of all, she stands at Jesus' feet and she weeps. Now think of that. She is bold enough to come into the home of a Pharisee when he has a dinner party. She's bold enough to do that, and yet she's not bold enough to come to the face of Jesus. She doesn't come all the way to the table. She stands right above his feet. She weeps. 
And then Luke says she bends down, and as she does, the tears begin to fall on his feet, and she takes her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, the Jews said that a woman's glory is evidenced by her hair. The hair of a woman was the glory of a woman. So what's she doing? What's Luke saying? She's laying her glory down. She's laying everything down at his feet. And not only that, she begins to kiss his feet. You know, there are only two times in the whole New Testament where Jesus is said to be, ki to be kissed. Here, and 14 chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us about a man who kisses Jesus. Remember, where does he kiss him? On his face to betray him. But she kisses Jesus on his feet to thank him. You say, where do you get that? Because of the next thing Luke tells us. She takes a white flask of ointment and she either breaks it or opens it, and she pours all of the costly ointment on his feet. You say, how did you get the idea that it's costly? Because later in Jesus' ministry, when that other woman does it, in Bethany, in the south, not in Galilee, in the north like this woman, Judas says to Jesus, what a waste! This could have been sold for a hundred or for a year's wages. That's one way I know it's costly. The other way I know it's costly is because the parable Jesus tells is about a parable of extravagance. So this stuff is very costly. And the question I ask is, where did she get the money? How did she secure this treasure? And the only answer is through working. There's only one place she got the money for this ointment, and that's her own sin. Think of it. She takes the spoils of her life and pours them out on Jesus' feet. I mean, it's one thing to kiss his feet. It's one thing to wipe his feet with his hair, her hair. It's another thing to take a year's worth of wages and pour them on Jesus' feet. But that's exactly what she does. Third, notice the objection. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. If Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who she is. You know the irony? He knows exactly who she is. He knows all about her. He knows her reputation, and he knows her heart. See, in Jesus' day, a dinner party was a public event. It was a place where news was circulated. People could go in and out of a house freely and listen to the conversation. So when this woman walks into Simon's house, and he knows who she is, his principal concern is his own reputation. What will people think, he asks. He knows her reputation. He knows what she's done. He knows what kind of woman this is who's entered his house. It's not an everyday occurrence. He knows what his, her presence will do to his own reputation. And the truth is, if she had come to his feet, he would have kicked her away. He knows everything his eyes and his brain tell him about this woman. 
Isn't it ironic? He says, if Jesus knew who this woman was and is. Years ago, Charles Swindoll told a story about a man who lived on the Upper East Side of New York City in a brownstone. And so one day, a friend of his is walking down the other side of the road and on, another, on the other sidewalk, and he sees his friend sitting in a chair. Next to him are three other chairs, a table, a, a, a sideboard, and a lamp. And so his friend crosses the street and says, man, it's unbelievable. You've got everything. I mean, you've got a gorgeous house. Now you have a sidewalk cafe. This is incredible. His friend said, no, not really. You see, my wife just kicked me out. You see, according to Simon, he knows who she is because he knows what his eyes tell him. But he can't possibly know the change that's occurred to her. He can't see into her heart. If he could see her heart and see who it was who changed her heart, he would have rejoiced at the thought of that woman coming into his house. But he can't see any of it because he's blind. I read a commentator, a woman this week, who said that's the greatest question Jesus ever asked. And here it is. Fourth point. Notice the object. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and washed them with her hair. Somebody has said, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not really the answer man. He is the question man. Did you know that Jesus asks 50% more questions than he ever answers? And according to this woman, it's the greatest question he ever asks. Simon, do you see this woman? Do you really see her? Do you really see her? Simon would say, of course I do. But the truth is he doesn't see her. He doesn't even know her. He can't. He's blind. This week I read about a 12-year-old boy in London. He's walking down the street and he saw a priest come out of his church with a yellow uh, rose on his lapel, pin there. So the boy came up to the priest and said, Sir, what are you going to do with that flower? The priest said, What? Forgot he was wearing a flower. He looked down. He, oh, oh, this flower? The boy said, Can I have that flower? The priest said, Certainly you can have this flower, but can I ask you why? The young boy said to the priest, because I want to give it to my grandmama. You see, a year ago, my mom and dad, that's how they call it, say mom, mom, whether you're in Britain or Pittsburgh, mom. My mom and dad divorced. 
And after two months, my mom found another man and she sent me away to my dad. Within a few weeks after that, my dad found another woman and sent me to my grandmama. Since then, she's cooked for me. She's told me how special I am. She's told me I can do and be anything I want to do and be. So I want to give my grandmama something pretty so she feels special too. By this time, the priest had tears in his eyes. And he said, son, that's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever heard, at least in the last year. Come with me, I want to give you some more flowers. So they went into the sanctuary and up to the chancel, and he made a bouquet, gave it to the boy. You know why Simon doesn't greet Jesus properly? You know why he never gives him water for his feet or oil for his head? It's because he really can't see who Jesus is. You see, when your faith is founded on your own goodness, you do what's necessary. You act on convention. You act on the convictions of your mind rather than the passions of your heart. There's only one spring or reservoir from which love, true love flows. And that is never a sense of your own goodness. It's always the knowledge of His grace. You see, when that woman came into that party, it wasn't to get anything, it was to give something. It was to give everything. It wasn't to receive forgiveness. She had already received that forgiveness and she was responding to it. When she comes into the house, it's not to gain something, it's to give something. Something she's already received. And that's really the gospel, isn't it? Have you ever thought about it? The gospel begins and it ends with giving. Jesus laid himself down to come into this world and he lays himself down to get us out of this world. Gary Gilmore's right. It's all about what's on the inside of us. It's all about what has sway over our hearts. And the truth is there are only two things that can have sway over your heart when you boil it all down. Guilt or gratitude. Guilt is common. Guilt is a beggar. Guilt never gives. Guilt is always blind and has nothing to give. Gratitude is always extravagant. It never stops giving. Giving. 